He started down the steps from the porch, but the gate opened, and the riders disappeared through it. He waited in the courtyard, meaning to speak to the lieutenant when he returned. When he heard the shouting on the wall, he rushed up the stairs to the lookout above the gate. Staring into the twilight, he saw no one on the road. The horseman and the body of the messenger were gone. The messenger? he asked. Jumped up the moment they got near, the guard said. No more dead than I am. One of the riders took him up behind and they rode into the woods. Talaeus stared. Five men. The messenger's guard, minus one. Follow me, he commanded the nearby guard, and ran back down the rampart stairs even faster than he had climbed them. Poor Talaeus. This is only the beginning, buddy. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Atolian Archives, your Queen's Thief reread podcast to get you through the wait for Return of the Thief. It's June 2nd, 2019. In this chapter, we have fake flirting, fake dying, fake cannon, a fake guard, a false hand, and one very real boat. And we're so close, so close, so close, mere pages away from you know what. Rereading this, I barreled through to chapter 15 because I just couldn't wait. Who wouldn't? So I might, we might accidentally uh, talk about chapter 15 a little bit prematurely <laughs> a couple of times. Because they, they, they just flow one into the other so easily. The funniest thing about that opening paragraph that we read is the image of Talaeus running up and down the stairs. <laughs> He goes up the stairs, then he goes back down the stairs, then he goes back up the stairs, and then he's like, oh crap, and he runs back down the stairs. That's what I'm truly sad we're missing with the lack of a movie version, is everyone's facial expressions when they realize they've been <laughs> duped. Talaeus, you know, he's getting in his cardio. <laughs> if, if anything can be said for Eugenides, it's that he keeps everybody on their toes. Keeps them in shape. Yeah. One of the things that I appreciate the most about this series is that there's really almost never dramatic irony in terms of what's going to play out. Like, you don't know. Mm -hmm. And you have to watch it in real time, just as the people who are getting duped <laughs> find out. <laughs> and well, there's dramatic irony in the sense that you eventually know that something's going on. Right. Like in King of Atolia, you know he's up to something. Yeah. But you don't know what, and that's part of the fun. Yeah, because you see the heightened stakes just enough to get excited and, you know, raise the suspense for you as the reader, but you still get the punch of all the plot twists. Mm -hmm. And you get to be older and wiser than the characters. <laughs> A big theme in this chapter, which is pretty short, and there's not uh, as much of an emotional punch to it as the next chapter. It's uh, kind of that that last bit of setup before the bomb drops. Nothing could have as much emotional punch as the next chapter, though, let's be real. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it might be the peak in terms of sheer uh, WTF factor. <laughs> I remember reading it for the... Oh my god, no! That's the next episode! We have to... Yes, let's... Oh, stay on track, stay on track. We'll we get to, there eventually. We have to stay, stay in chapter 14. But uh, there's a lot in this chapter about uh, deception versus perception and truth versus lies. There's, Nehusaresh has 
a conversation with Atolia where she thinks she's duping him and he thinks he's duping her. And they're both right. And they're both <laughs> they're both pretending to flirt with each other and trust each other. And Nahusharesh thinks that she doesn't know that he came by boat and that he's blocked off the roads. And oh, that's right. He doesn't dupe her. And I'm sorry, I redact that. She Excuse me, Atolia. <laughs> she actually has had her spies tell her everything and she's on board, but she's distracted by that, I think. And so she's more open to this greater duping. <laughs> <laughs> duping greater and lesser that comes from the Adesians. And the 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 trick that Eugenides has set up here is also unexpected because it's just so elaborate and so weird and so against the conventional rules of what you do in a war that no one would ever expect it. Mm -hmm. The fake cannons? Yeah. And uh, something that was brought up when he sunk Sunus's navy is that everyone knows that in the past Eugenides has worked alone. Mm -hmm. So they may still not be expecting him to have help like that. Also, one of the reasons that this plan is so successful is because even though... It's because in addition to Atolia not suspecting anything like this, possibly, is that the way Eugenides creates this plan, he's using her own assumptions. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, if I'm getting this complicated intrigue correctly, what happens in this chapter is... Their fake messenger sends a message saying that Baron Efkis has betrayed Atolia and let another Edesian army close to Ephrata in the woods with the cannons, ready to blow them up. And that the Baron must be holding Rhea as well, and there are no ships, so they're just trapped. So, Eugenides has used Atolia's assumptions that any of her Barons, or at least this one, would definitely sell her out mm -hmm. in a heartbeat. Because He's created a narrative. Right. And because we see, in both in this chapter and throughout the rest of the book, Atolia has been in civil war with her barons before. And so she knows that they are incredibly capable of uh, betraying her, attacking her, conspiring with the Medes and the Edesians. And Eugenides does this a lot, where he, he creates a narrative, he creates a story that he knows people will lean into and can easily cast themselves as characters in. Mm -hmm. He does that in The Thief. Um, he he creates a situation where uh, the magus can feel superior, where the magus can, can put Eugenides into a particular role in relation to him, and he'll do that a lot in King of Atolia as well. Mm -hmm. And this is very much another example of that. This is something that would happen in this war. Yeah. Another detail in this chapter that shows us just how... just that shows us more of that tension between the barons and Atolia is that in the very beginning she's listening to the reports of her spies, and it says that the spies reported mainly on her army, at least on its hereditary officers. So I think hereditary officers would be... The nobles. The nobles, right. Although she has changed the model of the army and allowed people to be promoted above their stations in life so that they have mm -hmm. like low class people who have been promoted to officers yeah and that's a 
it's a, a flaw in this feudal system that they have. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know if I would say that there's any indication that the feudal system as it works here is on its way out. I don't think that in yeah. that this series we see that kind of change, but it definitely feels unsustainable in the in the very long run. Yeah, she's been centralizing her power, mm-hmm. but that doesn't necessarily mean. I mean, I guess centralizing her power is a way of making the feudal system more effective, making them mm-hmm. adhere to it more because its vassals obey lords who obey the monarchy. Mm-hmm. And before that, I guess they had, Atolia had, the barons were fighting the feudal system, and now she's making them come back into it. Yeah, but, but she's also creating more opportunities for regular people. Right, right, right. Whereas Edith doesn't seem to have these problems. We don't really get as much of a view of how Edith works. I think that maybe it's because Edith is so small. Yeah, and they don't. My impression is that Edith, so we already know that Edith doesn't have, uh, like, that much arable land, and that's why they have to trade. So, like, they have a little bit, but most of what they have is, like, forests. Mm-hmm. So, maybe that means that land is not as important? Yeah, land ownership uh, doesn't direct the course of your life, yeah, or lack thereof. Because, I mean, barons would probably still make money off of logging their own lands in a way that, like, I mean, lower classes probably couldn't make money off of logging if the trees belonged to the barons, etc. There might be less of a a division between the lifestyles of different classes of people in Edis. I mean, it's difficult to envision any sort of actual equality in this kind of world setup. But uh, with Jen's family, we see things like his brother is a watchmaker. Right, and his other brother is a soldier. Yeah, so it seems like nobles have careers uh, that are roughly comparable to what an ordinary person would have Mm -hmm. and interact with ordinary people more on that level. Whereas in Atolia, the barons are very much... They are the landowners, mm-hmm. and they are the commanders. Um, there's literally more slavery in Atolia. Yeah, we never get any indication if Edis has slaves or not. Yeah. Which I would kind of guess, I mean, the country, the economy isn't set up for it. No. And soonest they need, quote-unquote need, slaves because they have plantations. Yeah, they need large farming. amounts of people to farm. But Edis doesn't have that that land structure, that farm economy. Another difference between Edis and Atolia, obviously, is somewhere in here it says, like, oh, all of Edis's barons would follow her into hell if she asked them to. So, like, she mm-hmm. has none of that, none of those loyalty problems either. And it's a, it's a geographically smaller country. They're physically closer to her. And a uh, smaller population, there's a smaller amount of them. They have less of their own independent economic power. I think a lot of uh, Edis's success depends on people working together. Yeah. And, I mean, more broadly, we'll continue to see how the success of all three countries depends on all three of them working together. Thesis. And that is, that is an ultimate goal. And we'll hear about that in the next chapter as well. 
Another thing that comes up in this chapter and is going to come up again in chapter 15 is that the Mede Empire is newer than Aetis, Aetolia, and Sunis. In this chapter, the Mede ambassador, it says, he preferred beauty to age. He didn't say so, but the queen knew it. Perhaps because she was Aetolia and it was her Megaron, she preferred it to the splendors of the Mede palaces. And so it's um, the, the small castle where Aetolia is staying is more shabby, more drab than palaces that Nehusharesh is used to, but it's also much, much older. She says that it existed and was a castle back when the place where the emperor's palace is was just an empty plot of land. And so we haven't really seen that before, this idea of the Mede Empire as an upstart, something that's possibly transient, whereas these are, are, are long-standing places and governments. Yeah. And so this plan succeeds, and uh, Atolia is tricked into fleeing by way of her emergency evac plan. And uh, she is taken onto a boat by a guard, and she notices that the guard has a hook for a hand. And that's where their interaction ends uh. in this chapter. <laughs> you get just a hint of what's to come. And uh, I think that's really interesting because she doesn't recognize him at first. Yeah, because... So, apparently, she sees him in the courtyard, and it says later, like, oh, she hadn't looked twice at him when she saw him there. And then, in the hallway here, it says uh, he presented her with a view of his ear and awaited her orders. But I guess she didn't, she wasn't looking closely enough at the side of his face to recognize him. But also, like, she hasn't seen him that much. Yeah. I think that And he's that... changed a lot. Yeah, as yeah, she, yeah, As she points out in the next chapter. It suggests both that he's changed a lot and that she's maybe not inclined to look twice at an anonymous guard yeah. or an anonymous soldier, which we've talked already about how that is a strength of Jens, that he pays attention to people who others overlook. Mm -hmm. Also, he was wearing a false hand earlier, but then he changes into a hook for this, for this interaction. Oh, yeah. I didn't, like, realize that. Mm-hmm. Ugh, do you think he did that for emotional impact? Like, I mean, the hook is more useful, but also... It's more useful, it's more intimidating, and it's also more... Um, uh, it increases the uh, other people's perception of his otherness based yeah. on this. Like a sign in her face saying, you did this. Yeah. Oof. We'll talk about that a lot more next time. Stay tuned. That's chapter 14, and it's almost time to pop the question. <laughs> Send us your comments, questions, and thoughts. Chime in at atolianarchives.tumblr.com. Be, Be blessed, blessed in, in your endeavors. endeavors. Thank you for listening. This has been an amateur embroidery production. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher.